what we see with Islamic State, and particularly Al-Qaeda, is a targeting of innocent civilians. We didn't have any knowledge, we didn't know what, why he was arrested. And when they said it's the same for terrorism... Even at the time when the police arrived, we didn't know what was going on. Fabricated notebook, exchanges between police that have no honest motive, entirely sinister. Four unknown fingerprints, uh, which were not Kabay Hussein's or Nawi Dali's. Are we really here with planted evidence, fabricated notebooks? Well, sadly, we're right back there. Welcome back to episode two of The Musketeers. I'm investigative reporter Mark Williams-Thomas, criminologist and former detective. This series is looking at the case of four men convicted of terrorism. Naweed Ali, Kobabe Hussein, Mohiba Rahman and Tahir Aziz. The question that I'm asking you as a listener to consider is, are the convictions safe? And if not, could there be a miscarriage of justice? Central to the prosecution case is the bag and its contents found in Ali's car. And central to the defence case are the concerns that they have about the actions of the police. In this episode, we will explore why the men were of interest to MI5 and look much closer at the evidence the police provided. So why were the men of interest to MI5 and the police? Hussein's sister explains more. So that August, it was Ramadan, and we were told that he would like to spend the last 10 days of Ramadan in a mosque in the UK. Um, I think that was up north, I think Dewsbury, um, if I recall rightly. So yeah, so we were we were told that that's what he'd like to do, and my parents were happy with that. Um, it's quite common, it's a religious sort of observation, so yeah, that was absolutely fine. But then unfortunately we discovered that he'd actually gone to Pakistan. It was a very stressful time and we didn't know why at that point. However, what we did find out was that he wanted to go to a training camp. Um, however, one of the other young men who's shied, he got in touch with his family and then we got to speak to everyone and they wanted to immediately return because obviously it was a decision. So let me just take wrong. you back to, he tells you that he wants to go to... Dewsbury up north in relation to Ramadan. Just explain to me what Ramadan is as a culture for you. It's a really important period of time, isn't it? Yes. So it's one of our five pillars in Islam. Um, it's a month where we observe fasting. It's extremely long fast because it's according to British summertime now. Um, this year, for example, it's been a nearly 18, 19 hour fast. And I know some parts of the country it's been up to 20, 21 hours. Um, it's a month about giving and just really reconnecting yourself um, to the religion and praying. So it's a really precious month. And within a matter of two, three days, they're on a flight back home? Yes. Yeah, so um, luckily enough, um, Shahid actually has his uncle who arranged to collect them from, well, they had a meeting point. I'm not sure where from, but they um, were able to sort of stay with him on that night that Hubeib and Navid arrived um, in Islamabad, which is the capital. Also, at the same time, conveniently, um, Isaac's grandparents were in Pakistan, um, so they visit quite frequently. They weren't able to get a flight back on the 26th of August because there is no flights um, from Islamabad to Birmingham Airport. So the quickest flight that they could basically get back on was the 27th of August, which is what they did. And um, it was Isaac's grandparents, so his grandfather and mother, who um, escorted all of them back. So your brother is eventually prosecuted, having been to the training camp and the offence being engaging in a preparation of terrorism act. And he receives three years, four months. What is the family's reaction to that? It was really, really disappointing. Um, he, for us, he was only a child. He was extremely young. And just looking at his past record, um, you know, an individual who's never done anything, has never been, you know, in the police's, on the police's radar as such, um, it was extremely harsh. Um, and I just think that the whole process and just everything could have been dealt with a lot better. For example, um, they were under surveillance um, prior to him travelling to Pakistan. Or at least what definitely came out was the fact that the authorities knew that he was travelling to Pakistan that day. Right. 
And you had a worried family at home. So your brother was already subject to either the police or the British intelligence services, security services, prior to him travelling to Pakistan. I think that was due to the fact that the other men who they were in contact with and who are now sentenced yep. were subject to security surveillance. So okay. they were included as part of that. And the only reason why we know that is because when they were sentenced or arrested, there was footage um, of them sitting in the airport, Nawid and Hubeib. And what when I saw that image um, on the news, I think what came to mind was actually you knew that my brother was going to get onto this flight. And you've got a worried family at home, a mother, a father, a sister, who actually don't even know if their son or brother is alive. And I think that for me is extremely strong. Oh, well, what and could they have done? I mean, are you suggesting that they perhaps shouldn't allow them on the flight or come and talk to you? What What do you now think should have happened? I mean, I don't know what intelligence material that they had, but the other men were definitely under surveillance. And if they knew that my brother was associated or someone was not good for someone, I would have just expected for them to either talk to my brother or for someone to talk to the family. It's clear that the convictions brought the men to the attention of MI5 and the police labelled as terrorists. But what did Hussein's sister know of her brother taking a job at the fake Hero Couriers? My brother actually messaged me and it was um, at the end of the July, July and I knew he was actively looking for work anyway and um, I used to always encourage him, you know, just start your job search online and he, he was, he was actively sitting there looking for work. You know, he had a few jobs in between the time um, that he came home. Um, and he messaged me, actually, and he was extremely happy. What did she know about her brother's arrest following the bag find? Did she know he had been arrested for terrorism offences? We didn't know at all. Um, and I said to my mum, what, what was he doing? I'm, I'm really close to my brother, um, to the extent of... I'm, I'm so close that I still remember that before my mum gave birth and the night of her giving birth, I was like, when is my baby brother coming? And I've just, I've got this bond with him. And I, I asked my mum, I said, before he left, before he got arrested, how was he? What was his reaction? What was his state? And my mum said, um, well, he was having a shower, firstly. It was Friday, so he was getting ready for Friday prayers. Yep. Um, he went to have a shower. And my mum said that they wanted to knock the door down. And he said, excuse me, I've got no clothes on. Can you just wait a minute? Let me just get dressed. Just give me a minute. And my mum said when he got out, I think he said to them, like, why are you here again? Like, just please leave me alone. And my mum said it was that desperate, like, please, just yeah. why are you here again? And she goes, my heart just sank. And my mum, and then I, my mum said to me that she said, Hobe, what have you done? Quite sternly, as a mother would, with the authorities at her house again. And he looked at my mum and he goes to my mum, mum, I've done nothing. And she goes, that innocence in his face. And that always sits with me. Right. And that sat with me from that day. And to be honest with you, we were in extreme shock because we knew what my brother was up to in terms of his lifestyle. And since the first case, mm. we've been even closer. Chris Mullin was a member of parliament for Sunderland South from 1987 until 2010. During his time in parliament, he served as chairman of the Home Affairs Select Committee. Chris led a campaign that resulted in the release of the Birmingham Six. Tell me about the Birmingham Six. How did you become involved in that? Uh, a friend of mine who uh, called Peter Chippendale, he was a Guardian journalist, had attended the trial of the people charged with the Birmingham pub bombings and the appeal of the Guildford, uh, the people convicted of the Guildford Woolwich bombings. And he remarked to me at the time uh, that they got the wrong people, he thought, in, in both cases. And he also said to me that actually the solution to this lies in Ireland. You've really got to find the people who did it in the Birmingham case. Uh, um, I did manage to track down the, the, the actual perpetrators. And you got to speak to them? I interviewed all the perpetrators, yes. They didn't all fess up, but two did, including one of those who put the bombs in the pubs. The case against them uh, was twofold, really. It was confessions obtained in their first three days in custody, signed by four of the six, and forensic evidence which was said to have proved positive against two of them. And in addition, there was quite a lot of circumstantial evidence. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they drank in pubs and clubs where a number of the people, the wrong people drank. Uh, on the day that the 
the convictions were quashed, 14 of West Midlands police officers had either lied or given misleading evidence. How significant was the altered pocketbooks in relation to the appeal? Oh, it was decisive, I would say. I mean, well, the pocket notebooks turned out to be conclusive evidence of the fraud and perjury that had been orchestrated uh, in the Birmingham case. They showed that really anywhere up to about 14 members of the West Midlands Serious Crime Squad had lied in the, in the witness box. And, and what was most significant about them, which never really got the attention it deserved, uh, was that because they were rewriting their notebooks up to the door of the court about nine months after the event, whilst at the same time swearing that these were contemporaneous notes. And in, the, uh, in those days, police officers, and perhaps it's still the same, have to stamp every page of the notebook with a date stamp to show the date on which the interview uh, was done. A and they did this, uh, but they knew, of course, since they were writing this up many months later, that they had to wind back the date stamp to the relevant day and month and year when the interviews uh, should have been conducted, were conducted. And they had wound back the dates of the, of the day and the month, but they'd forgotten to wind back the year. So all these notebooks had been stamped 1975, when they were supposed to be sort of, it was supposed to be November 1974. Uh, and someone, I think, had gone over them in pen to try and correct them, but you could see quite clearly underneath uh, that that's what had, had happened. Uh, and nobody, well, nobody had ever looked at the notebooks before until the Devon and Cornwall police came along. Their second, it was their second inquiry, and they did a very thorough job, and they had to be congratulated for it. And I do remember uh, a chief inspector remarking to me, uh, and, and one who wasn't involved in all this, but had been around at the trial, uh, uh, that he'd seen George Reed, the chief superintendent, now dead, who was the architect of all this perjury, that uh, the day before he was due to give evidence. And he said, you're looking very tired, George. To which uh, George Reed had replied, I've been up all night rewriting my notebook. So it was quite blatant. And I suspect it was probably the norm in those days. But uh, in the Birmingham case, they all believed that they got the right people. And why did they believe that? Uh, because the forensic scientist told them so. A very unreliable forensic scientist was called out uh, to Morecambe Police Station. Five of these six had been arrested off the train that was going to, uh, to, to meet with the boat that went to Belfast that night. And so he was called to Morecambe Police Station and he was supposed to do a preliminary swab. And if he got a positive on the swabs, he was to take it back to the um, laboratory and put it through a mass spectrometer. And without taking his sample back to the laboratory, he told the Westminster police, he told them that these guys were covered in nitroglycerine. And that resulted in the beatings that resulted in turn in the confession. I did not just beatings, I mean mock executions uh, uh, and all sorts. Uh, Richard McElkenny, one of the six, was subject to mock execution in Queens Road Police Station. Um, he could describe it in detail. It turned out there was a shooting range at, uh, uh, um, and although when this subject came up at the original trial, the police, they got the head of the firearms unit uh, to say that, well, yes, but uh, none of the kind of bullets that would have had this impact it some sort of fluff came out at the barrel of a gun apparently but were available at queen's row and it wasn't for another 16 or 17 years that it turned out all that stuff was available at queen's road and the judge at the time was lord bridge he was totally on the side of the of the prosecution uh, um, dogs were brought into the police cells guns shotguns were in the police cells at queen's road what, to threaten yes uh, and they were kept up standing all night sitting down standing hands on their heads. It's, it's, it's a horrific story. Well, noble cause corruption uh, was something I think it was a Metropolitan Police Commissioner who referred to it. But I think it's a phenomena that was known to police officers who may have devised that phrase themselves. I think it was quite widely. When you've got some villains in front of you, who you knew were in this line of business, and uh, you were satisfied that these were the right people, if, even if the evidence didn't quite add up, then it was justified uh, to improve the evidence. The problem was always, uh, in my experience, elite groups of detectives who, there's a balance. You need expertise, so you've got to keep them in place for a long time uh, uh, to gain the expertise. Um, but you also need a turnover to stop bad habits developing. And so, for example, 
uh, one of the Westmoreland serious crime squad, and they sort of modelled themselves on that television programme, The Sweeney, you know. They used to break down doors and shout, it's the serious, we're the serious. Uh, 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 they drank a lot as well, and they all wore suits that didn't quite fit at the front. Do you think there is ever a justification for the means justifies the end? So an action to be taken by a police officer who believes themselves the suspect is responsible to alter or fabricate evidence? No, it can't be justified under any circumstances. The problem with putting away the wrong people is that the right people carry on doing whatever they were doing beforehand. Do you think there's a problem once a conviction's been given, there's a difficulty sometimes in getting the justice system to accept that it needs to look again, so therefore you end up hitting a brick wall ah. with those initial appeals? The courts are very reluctant to own up to mistakes. Once the, and judges, appeal court judges, even now with the benefit of hindsight, and there have been a lot of convictions quashed over the years, are reluctant to admit that, uh, that mistakes uh, can have occurred, and reluctant in particular to overturn jury verdicts. You did sterling work in relation to the Birmingham case. Fast forward to where we are today, we've got allegations of a police officer planting evidence, altering his pocket notebook, having communication with officers when he was particularly directed by the judge not to, and not being prepared to answer many of those very direct questions. But what do you think should happen in relation to them? Well, I think the case should be referred back to the Court of Appeal. The, uh, the problem will be this business that there has to be new evidence. And it's quite clear from what I've heard about this case, is that the old evidence is the problem, and uh, it's quite clear where we should go. We should, uh, this police officer's activities need to be investigated. His mates need to stop, or his superiors need to stop covering up for him, if that's what they're doing. And it ought to be a judge who's ordering that. Uh, but I have to say the history of prosecuting policemen caught in the most blatant circumstances uh, is not a happy one. The prosecution case was that four men were about to carry out a terrorist attack, discussing an imminent attack the night before their arrest. Mr Camlish explains the basis for this view. So on the night before they were, the 26th of August, the, they were talking about a FIFA football game, the defendants between them, you know, playing FIFA, it's not the sort of thing you'd talk about or be so relaxed about if the next day you were going to bomb somebody or get yourself killed, because that's what happens. Mm. If, you, if you take out a knife with the word kaffir on it, nobody's going to bat an eyelid if the police nick you and then shoot you, claiming that you lifted the knife up or they thought you might have had a gun in the bag or whatever. So w whenever anybody decides to commit an act which involves public terrorism, they know that they themselves might also not survive. So you don't, you don't really talk about FIFA. So let's look more forensically at the key parts of the prosecution's case, starting with a JD sports bag. What DNA evidence did you find of Ali's linking either to the bag or any of the items in the bag? Zero. And how crucial all, is that? All fingerprints. Uh, Nothing. And, and, I mean, that's pretty significant, isn't it? Well, I mean, there's an argument that you wouldn't touch it. If you were that careful, you wouldn't put your fingers on it. But if you were that careful, you wouldn't take it to work with you and give the keys to the car to a stranger and put the bag just under the seat for him to see. So, so you've been work, incredibly careful work. in one area, yeah. but incredibly stupid in another. But also, it would not be possible to remove your DNA from all these items and the bag because he'd have had to have carried it. He'd have had to have had it in his house. You know, the, his DNA and the DNA of his family if it's a carrier bag, a supermarket bag, or a JD Sports bag, you'd have had to get it from a JD Sports shop. So was there anyone's DNA or fingerprints found on the bag or the items? So there was unknown, there were four unknown fingerprints, and uh, which were not Kabeb Hussain's or Naweed Ali, so that was a positive, not them, or any of the defendants, or any of their associates, and positive no DNA of any of the defendants or other associates on the bag. But, and inevitably, we asked for 
the DNA of Andy and Vincent and the fingerprints of Andy and Vincent to be tested against the unknown samples. And the prosecution refused to do it and the judge refused to order them to do it. So there was four lots of fingerprints on the bag and the some, and some mixed and DNA. Some mixed DNA. Yet the Crown refused to do for elimination purposes any of those people that could have had access to that bag. It's actually worse than that. Detective Sergeant Chambers, who was the so-called officer in the case, the day-to-day -day running of the case, gave evidence that um, the fingerprints of Andy and Vincent were held on file and those four prints were not theirs. There'd been a check. That was a lie, um, which was we discovered a bit later on, and um, he had to accept that he'd been wrong about that. But I, obviously I asked him why he'd said it, and um, he gave a, a, a nonsensical answer. But it's a fact that he lied about it, and it's a fact that they still, to, da to date, are refusing to test Andy and Vincent's prints against those four prints. So how do you know that he lied about the fact that he tested those? Because they hadn't been tested. He had to concede it. Because we asked him, when he said they have, they've been tested, we want to, I said, show us the testing. You know, show us what happened and what the result is. You know, maybe there, we, we didn't know he was lying, but maybe there were some characteristics of the fingerprints which actually did match them and we may wanted to get our own expert onto it. This came at the very end of the case. And of course, when they had to show us what they found, i.e. that there was no match, he had to admit they hadn't even done it. And so in terms of those, the fingerprints and DNA, it, would there be a logical explanation from Andy or Vincent to say, well, yes, we touched them, we, we weren't wearing gloves, we did touch them? Well, Andy said never, he didn't. So Vincent's evidence was quite careful on this, but he actually slipped up. So he was asked to by me to demonstrate what, how he'd handled the bag and the contents. And he gave various different accounts, but because he hadn't been asked by the prosecution, and it's not in his statement. So it was an open book, and, and I'm not sure whether he prepared himself for this, but I actually asked him to demonstrate, and he ended up demonstrating by, because he used the word eased, eased the items out of the bag and he put his hands in the bag this way and held the bag with the back of his hands right. and then tipped the bag up like that. So his fingerprints so his not, evidence could not have been on the, on the bag in, in that way because he held it with the back of his hand. Another key aspect of Vincent's evidence related to his pocket notebook entries. One key piece of evidence in this case was Vincent's notebook. So he claimed that Every time he did anything on this job and had an interface with either Kabay, Hussain and latterly Nawid Ali, um, he would record it contemporaneously in his handwritten notebook. And these entries, or, or if not contemporaneously, with, within an hour or so thereafter. And these entries included assertions that Kabay, Hussain had come into work with a multicoloured JD sports bag and this word this term multicolored JD sports bag was critical to their case because that was what was found allegedly on the 26th of August so if Kabe Hussein had had the same bag or an identical bag on any previous day it would have showed either that what he was carrying was the terrorist kit or that the bag that the terrorist kit eventually went into was the bag that he had had so it pulled him into the case in a very compelling way if it was true but the problem is it wasn't true and the key points are these first of all disclosed to us um, were a series of cctv images of kebab hussein um, in and around birmingham which included on the days when he was said to have been carrying a so-called multicolored jd sports bag and on each day, he wasn't carrying a multicolored JD sports bag. He was carrying a JD sports bag, but it was a black one. And the, the interesting thing about this is the JD sports bag that the stuff was said to have been found in was on promotion and was only available in, in this period of this operation for six weeks. So it was given out by shops as a promotion, and it, that's why it's multicolored.
So in order for him to have had this, or Naweed Ali to have had it, they'd have had to got it with, get it within that six weeks. And in that whole six week period, when Kabay Hussain was seen with a JD sports bag, it was the different standard JD sports bag. So this proved that, that the officer was lying when he said he'd come into work with a JD sports bag that was multicolored. So that's the first point. He conceded in the end when all this was put to him on the, all the individual days that he's not now saying it's a multicolored JD sports bag and he's not saying that it was a, is the same bag. He had to resile from it because the cameras proved that it wasn't the same bag. It, it, but the problem with this case is it didn't matter what he said and how many lies he was caught out telling because he could, he seemed, it seemed that he could just get away with saying anything. I went down to the lockup to see the area for myself. I started by speaking to one of the adjoining lockup owners. Did you get spoken to with regards to what was going on there? Did you know at the time what was going on? It was only afterwards. Only till after. Only after when the police came and everything like no, that. No, when the police left. Even at the time when the police arrived, we didn't know what was going on. CCTV certainly played an important part of the prosecution's case used by the security services to place the men together. But what about at the lockup? What CCTV was present there? So as I sit in my car, I'm just having a look around, count up how many CCTV cameras. So on my left-hand side, I've got one on the wall, and then on the buildings themselves, I've got one, two, three, four, four cameras which point towards the entranceway to number 14. And then another one, two, three cameras pointing the other way, which again may show people approaching the couriers. And, I, and of course why that's important is that potentially they could have caught somebody on CCTV carrying that bag, whether it be the suspects or indeed anybody else. And what I now need to find out is why wasn't any of that CCTV produced and disclosed to the defence? Because it seems to me as though it is potentially crucial to establishing how that bag came to be in the back of that vehicle. The JD Sports bag that was found in the rear of Ali's car was a different one to the one that Hussein had been seen carrying in surveillance. But what did this mean for Vincent's evidence and his pocket notebook entries about it? We put to him that he must have written in multicoloured sports bag, JD Sports bag, well after the events and well after the arrests in order to bring Kabeh Hussein into the case because he hadn't been carrying a multicolored sports bag. So it must have been written later, which he'd fundamentally denied, repeatedly saying, my notes were written contemporaneously or shortly thereafter. So he was caught out on the general writing of the notebook by two important bits of evidence, which I'm certain in any other case would have resulted in the prosecution dropping the case at this point. So the first one was where he'd written in the receipt of an email from Nawid Ali at 17.30 hours on the 31st of July. And it recorded contemporaneously and then there was a whole day of recording of the next things that happened on the 1st of August. Communications with Kabeh Hussain and Nawid Ali over two and a half pages, bringing him up to 17.30 on the 1st of August. So he said all of that was all written on that day. So unfortunately for him and the Crown, the email that he said had been received from Nawi Delhi at 17.30 on the 31st of July was in fact received from Nawi Delhi at 17.30 on the 1st of August, 24 hours later. So there's a whole 24 hours of notes which he'd written, but the event that he'd written in the note at 17.30 on the 31st of July hadn't happened. Vincent's evidence is that he wrote his notebook contemporaneously. But what does this mean? It means that Vincent is saying that he made his notes at the time or very shortly after. 
but what Mr. Camlish is saying is that Vincent cannot have written his notebook contemporaneously because he had entered details into his pocketbook for an event which had not yet occurred. Further to this, I have seen Vincent's pocket notebook and he makes what I would say are two suspicious entries. In the pocketbook margins for the 1st of August, for his 11.55 entry, he writes, asterisk, JD sports bag, asterisk. And on the 12th of August, again, in the margin, he writes, asterisk, JD sports bag, asterisk. Mr. Camlish makes further damning observations about Vincent's evidence. On the 1st of September, 2017, which was... Uh, six days after Vincent said he'd finished his notebook because he finished it on the 26th of August the day of arrest there's nothing else to write in it and had handed it in and put it somewhere safe the following text was sent by Simon Hussey the corrupt supervisor of Vincent um, which says as follows Vincent we have agreed with Cookie who is um, their superior, in fact, in charge of one of the teams in this case, that you will write your pocketbook for Passage, which is the name of the operation, not type. Hope that helps. So he was being told, after discussion with the two senior officers, between the two senior officers, that he could write his notebook rather than type it and hope that helps means that Vincent had asked them if he could write it rather than type it because otherwise why would they say hope that helps mm. and this all shows that these three officers senior officers in counter-terrorism and undercover work in the West Midlands have perverted the course of justice in the most serious way possible now, nobody had an answer to this. Nobody, none of the witnesses could explain, because they all gave evidence, Cook, um, Hussey and Vincent, as to what this meant, because there is no answer. And they all gave absurd answers. They said, I can't remember what it meant, and I can't remember what we were referring to. And I would say, well, look, it refers to his notebook in this case, which he has claimed is contemporaneous, and you are saying hasn't yet been written yet. Um, because you know that he had to write up a different version of events to include the multicoloured sports bag to get Kabeb Hussain into the case. Um, and the best they could do, at one point Hussey said, the past means the future, sorry, the future means the past, <laughs> in order to say why this was said six days after rather than before. And the significance of writing it rather than typing it was, of course, that he could then make an amendment to it. Exactly. Vincent and Andy did written notebooks. Everyone else did typed notebooks, including all the other undercover officers. So the next thing to do when you're alleging that, um, that a notebook is, is written later when it's claimed to be contemporaneous is to look at the, the, the record of the taking out of the book from the store. Yes because they've all got sequential numbers. And um, we actually put to Vincent that even though we hadn't seen the record from the store, that um, he must have taken out a book on a later date which had a too late sequential number and didn't fit into all the sequential numbers of the other books that were taken from the store. And I asked him whether that was the case and he said he didn't know, but it wouldn't be because it was taken out before the operation. Yeah. Anyway, we, um, we had to put this because it, if we were right, we wanted to show the jury that even without knowing what the no numbers were and whether they were sequential, mm. it was gonna happen. And lo and behold, when the disclosure came and the witnesses were called, the, the number was out of sequence of the notebook and um, they called an officer to take the fall for this who was saying he was having a bad day and he had problems in his life and written, wrote, written the wrong thing and must have given out the wrong notebook and all that sort of stuff but, it, but the basic fact was is that this notebook was out of sequence 
and didn't fit their story that the notebook was taken out when Vincent claimed it was. Another aspect that Mr Camlish highlights as a concern is the manner in which Vincent wrote his notes. He said that he wrote his pocketbook uh, wherever he was, so he'd sometimes do it in hero couriers and sometimes he'd go back to one of their bases in the area and get take whatever biro was on the desk and he was specifically I specifically asked him but obviously they're not going to have fountain pens sitting around on desks they'd have a biro and he said yes um, and I said when well, you wouldn't use the same one each time because you were in different places using other people's biros and he said yes anyway this whole book is written in black fountain pen it's in quite a thick, medium nib fountain pen, so it's not an ordinary cheap rollerball. It's a proper fountain pen with flowing ink. Sometimes the ink is smudged, and what's happened is he's written it all in one go, as the text shows, at least a week later, in the same pen. And this is obvious, and there's no doubt about it. And we had the original. It was the same black pen used throughout. The integrity of a witness whilst giving evidence is a cornerstone of any criminal trial. So much so that whilst giving evidence, a witness will be told not to discuss the case with anyone. We asked for their phone material du during the course of the trial. So the Crown originally served us with pre-trial phone communications. I asked Vincent where his phone was on a particular day and he said, I le I've left it back at the hotel. And I asked him the question, I think, because I wanted to see whether he'd been in communication with his colleagues about his evidence. Once he gave the answer of leaving it back at the hotel, I mean, why would you leave a mobile phone in your hotel? You can just switch it off. I mean, it's a mobile phone. And so I asked some incredulous questions about this and um, then put in a disclosure request. We put in a disclosure request about phones and why we wanted to have their current stuff looked at, so the Crown must have done it. And then they disclosed to us all the phone communications up to that point in the trial. Both he and Hussey had said, in terms, on oath, we've not been in contact with each other during the trial. I mean, not just not on the phone, but not talk to each other, um, not seen each other, sorry, they had said they'd seen each other, but they didn't stay in the same hotel. Um, anyway, the phones proved that they'd both been in contact with each other during the course of Vincent's evidence. On two separate days, there were phone calls, which were made, one at lunchtime, so it wasn't at the hotel, whilst Vincent was giving evidence, and one at 4.30, like minutes after the court sat, while Vincent was still in the building, so both Vincent and Hussey tell you their mobile phones are in the hotel, but they clearly aren't because they communicate with each other during the course of the day. Vincent said his was in the hotel. Vincent, right. So he couldn't have communicated with Hussey. Yes. And on two occasions, during court sitting hours, yeah. or just after, when he wasn't at the hotel, yeah. he was phoning Hussey. For several minutes. Something that the defence lawyers have concerns about is the issue of anonymity. Anonymity should not be erected as a barrier to that and it certainly should not be erected when the fundamentals of that evidence, i.e. the integrity of the officer, has been undermined. So in terms of pure principle, this breaches every one. In terms of English case law, it also breaches a fair amount, but uh, that has not one favour with the Court of Appeal here. So we're hanging on to that, but that, that is not the only hope. We just have to keep looking and searching, and you never know, in cases in the past, over the years, sometimes a police officer of integrity has said, look, I'm not standing for this, in one way or another, maybe it's indirectly, maybe it's clandestinely, maybe it's not being willing to put your head above the parapet and risk your pension, but nevertheless tipping off a, a journalist or a lawyer. All of that in the past has created a way to get into a case. And it's our hope that someone somewhere will say, aha, that rings a bell with me. Uh, I wonder if my experience is similar. I wonder if there's something that 
could put two and two together here and change. Um, and so that means an obligation to to keep doing what you're doing, and we're grateful for that. Um, just someone who is willing to think that something about this is profoundly wrong is one way or another in the end how how many te terrible wrongful convictions ha have have come to be unpicked but um i know how difficult a road that is um it just oughtn't to be like the bad old days but we've taken ourselves right back to the worst of the worst and going through that trial was an exercise in disbelief are we really here with planted evidence, fabricated notebooks, courts turning a blind eye to lying police, appeal court saying all's well? Well, sadly, we're right back there. The Crown applied for anonymity and it was granted and maintained throughout the case and following the case into appeal. Um, and um, he took advantage of it and the benefit of it so he knew that he could say I'm not answering a question on the ground that it might identify me even though it was palpably the case that that was would not happen so for example whether he had a shotgun license there are 562,000 people with a shotgun license in Britain so if he said he had one would not identify him as Vincent or yeah. the real person but that was the standard answer he gave but um, the key thing about not knowing who he was um, comes again within the phone material because the defence wanted um, to make inquiries about these two witnesses, Vincent and Andy, as to whether they got form for similar things, for planting stuff on people who were then prosecuted. And in the course of the phone communications before trial, prosecuting counsel wanted to know whether they had been accused of planting in the past. And they specifically asked Hussey, one of the superior officers in the undercover unit, to ask Vincent and Andy and Hadji whether they'd been accused of planting in the past. And the answers on the phone schedule were Hadji said never, Andy said on numerous occasions, and Vincent didn't answer. So when Vincent was in the witness box, we asked him, why he hadn't answered that question and he said I've never been accused of planting and then we we went a bit deeper into it what never um, and, uh, and then he started thinking well maybe they know or maybe the crown knows so I better come clean so he started saying well maybe maybe a limited number of times a few times he didn't say numerous but he said a few once or twice he said so there we are there's also a text between the officers on the subject of planting, um, which, in fact, there's more than one text, but uh, when you read it, you'll see that it means, that the obvious meaning is that they planted material before, and Vincent says to Andy, oh, the usual thing, us being accused of planting. So we asked these questions of the prosecution, and they said there are no records because there have been no disciplinaries. So this reinforced our request to have the names of the officers so we could ask mm. the solicitors who would have run the cases in their local area where they were the officers who were alleged to have been planting stuff on defendants to give us the full rundown in those cases. And the only way it can be done is by having their true identity. Because I've done this on several occasions. Mm. You know someone's name, you go to a set of solicitors who work in that town or that city and say, and who do who have a heavy caseload of, of, of criminal cases, and you say, have you ever come across this officer before? And almost invariably, it come, the name comes up. So that's what we wanted to do. And we couldn't do it, and um, we still can't do it because we don't know who Vincent and Andy are. The items found in the bag remain central to this case. If their origin could be established with certainty then it could provide the vital evidence that either showed the four men were correctly convicted or they were set up. So what of the gun that was found in the bag? This firearm in the bag appears to be a real Beretta handgun, pistol. 
it says Beretta on it and it is identical other than in one respect but not a respect that anybody noticed um, to a real Beretta handgun so they didn't know if it was loaded because mm. he didn't open it he claimed not to have opened it and they were waiting for a firearms um, trained officer to come and make it safe now this find was at 10 o'clock in the morning and the firearms officer didn't get there till 5 o'clock in the evening so nobody's to touch that gun and Vincent on his audio recording of describing the items before the building was vacated describes it as a real Beretta firearm a Beretta handgun which appears to be real that's what he said on the tape his boss has written that down in a note that he made around 11 o'clock when Vincent was reading this out. At 11 o'clock, what Vincent has told him was um, air pistol, Beretta air pistol. Right. Right. Now, nobody knew until 5 o'clock it was an air pistol. He recorded it himself as a real pistol, but he communicated to his boss at 11 a.m., that it was a Beretta, Beretta air pistol. Right. Now, nobody could have known that. Also in the bag was a NATO-style bullet. Which was a live bullet, but it didn't fit in the gun because it was an air pistol. So when you look at it, it looks as if there's a real gun in there mm. and there's a bullet which might be useful in the magazine of the gun. But when you examine it, it's not useful. So how, how does a terrorist, so-called, yep. use this bullet and why would you put it in a bag when it's useless it's there to make it look that these people have as much of an armory and access to as many things as possible but for a terrorist if you want to commit a terrorist atrocity you put things in the bag which are going to prove useful mm. you don't look for a bullet that you have to buy yeah. or get from somebody else mm. which might identify the person you got it from you don't put that in the bag when, it's, when, when there's no real gun in there I recently sent a freedom of information request to West Midlands Police asking for information about how many officers have shotgun and firearm certificates and also if they do firearms training at any army barracks. Their response was as follows. As of July 2017, 83 West Midlands Police officers held shotgun certificates and 23 held firearm certificates. We can confirm that army locations were used for firearms training, but we are unable, for security reasons, to give any further details. Given that West Midlands Police Firearms Officers do train at army bases, could the single NATO bullet that was found in the JD Sports bag have come from such a location? So we've set out the prosecution case, heard the background to the defendant's previous convictions, spoken with two family members about their respective brothers, and heard some serious concerns raised by both Miss Pierce and Mr Camlish, the defence lawyers, about the police case. And in particular, the undercover police officer, Vincent. I put these concerns to West Midlands Police. They replied with the following statement. All four men were unanimously found guilty after a four and a half month trial in August 2017. In October 2018, the Court of Appeal examined in great detail the safety of the convictions with Lord Justice Holroyd stating, we have considered whether anything put before us casts doubt on the safety of the convictions. We are satisfied that there is nothing that does so. The jury, by their verdicts, plainly rejected that the evidence had been planted. Having done so, there was ample circumstantial evidence against each of the accused to support the convictions. Following the trial, the head of West Midlands Police Counterterrorism, Detective Superintendent Matt Ward, gave an interview and said the following. It is important that we review both the operation and the trial, and we will learn any lessons which need to be learned. It's really important that if there have been mistakes, we will learn from those mistakes. But mistakes are not evidence of corruption. Mistakes are evidence of people making mistakes. In light of Detective Superintendent Ward's comments about a review, I asked West Midlands Police three specific questions. Have you undertaken a review? If so, what were the recommendations coming from it? If no review has been undertaken, then why not? Given the head of counter-terrorism said one would be done. And finally, have West Midlands Police undertaken an investigation into Vincent or any other officers post-trial, given the evidence that came out in court against him and other West Midlands Police officers that were involved in the operation? 
They responded to these questions as follows. An internal organisational debrief and an independent technical review were conducted to identify any learning opportunities for future operations. As a result of the debrief and the technical review, a number of procedural and administrative processes were improved. In regard to asking for the report to be released, they declined to provide any details, stating... As official sensitive reports, neither the debrief nor the technical review have been publicly released. West Midlands CTU undercover operations remain subject to regular inspection by the Investigatory Powers Commissioner's Office, the IPCO. And in regard to whether they have undertaken an investigation into Vincent or any other officers post-trial regarding the very serious allegations of dishonesty, they had this to say. All of the allegations raised by the defence team during the trial and rejected by the jury were reviewed by a senior appropriate authority who determined that no further action was necessary. I've gone back to the police and asked them who the senior appropriate authority is and they have refused to answer this direct point. My position in this series has been to take an impartial middle ground. However, as I have seen and heard the evidence, I have become more concerned. So much so that I believe the actions of the police, and in particular Vincent, do require closer scrutiny from an external body. In this country we police by consent, but this is only possible if the public trusts the police, and a key aspect of trust is transparency. Once the trust is lost and the police fail to be accountable, then this is a major problem. And as a result of this investigation, I have today submitted a report to the Independent Office for Police Conduct, IOPC, asking them to look into the very serious allegations of misconduct alleged to have been committed by West Midlands police officers that have been made by two of the country's best legal minds, Miss Pierce and Mr Camlish QC. I await the response from the IOPC. What's left now is for you to make up your mind. Do you believe these convictions are safe? That four dangerous men are behind bars, unable to carry out any future terrorist attacks? Or do you have concerns? Concerns that challenge the integrity of the police's evidence and as such, the prosecution case? And if so, are these the same concerns held by the convicted men's legal team? Namely, that the bag and its contents were planted and then a cover-up put in place. Do let me know your thoughts. Thank you for listening to episode two of The Musketeers. I'm Mark Williams-Thomas and I will be back soon with a new investigation. In the meantime, please get in touch if you have any information about the case or just to tell me what you think. Contact details and more information about the case can be found on our website, the-detective.co.uk or on our Twitter page, The Detective FM. In the meantime, whilst you think further about this case, let me leave you with the following comments, made recently by Mrs Justice Chima Grubb, which resulted in a significant payout by the Metropolitan Police following the arrest of three men for murder. Honest belief in guilt cannot justify prosecuting a suspect on false evidence. There is no place for any form of noble cause justification for corrupt practices in those trusted to uphold the law.